Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a very special simulcast of Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. The podcast is available at all the biggest platforms, Spotify, iHeartMedia. You can find us on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast every Tuesday. Presented by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner and you need a great speaker, or maybe you're a speaker and you need meetings to speak at, you can find out more at SpeakerMatch.com. And a very special thank you to our friends at Headline Books, one of America's largest independent uh, publishing houses for loaning us one of their award-winning authors to talk about journalism and his books today. He's a, a longtime newspaper writer, editor, and publisher, and the author of Enough and Raise Hell and What Goes Around Comes Around. My old friend Tony Hilton joins us today. Thank you for being here, and uh, thanks for spending some time on the podcast. Well, thank you, Burke, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I want to talk about the books, but I want to set the scene first a little bit as to where the germ of the idea for your books come from. And and they come from your background as a journalist, and you were sort of born into that profession. So uh, set that scene for us. Well, when I was a month old, my mother took me down to the Logan Banner, an old grizzly back shop uh, printer came out, put ink on my feet, put the print on newsprint, and I was hooked from there on, and that was about 81 years ago. So uh, that's where it began. I was born into a newspaper family, and now uh, these books are about my experiences running a newspaper. They're fiction, but I draw on my own experiences. Your mom and dad were both in journalism. Uh, what did they do? Well, my dad was managing editor of the Logan Banner. My mother was community news editor. And and this would have been in, in what years? 50s, 60s, 70s, somewhere in there? Well, my dad worked for the paper from uh, all the late 40s up into the 70s. The reason I ask, Tony, is for folks who are watching now online, um, they probably have a, a, a very different view of newspapers than folks from a, a generation ago when when that newspaper was a really vital part of your town, whether that be New York City, Washington, D.C., or a small town in, in the coal fields of West Virginia. Well, it's uh, no doubt the business has changed. I just wish you to get back to the founding fathers and why they put freedom of the press in the First Amendment to start with. You went on to, to teach some journalism classes as well, and, and you were an, an editor and writer and, and publisher of, of some newspapers on your own. Were those all in West Virginia? Yes. The uh, paper I published was located in Hinton. It was the Hinton Daily News, a five-day-a-week paper. Now it's a weekly called the Hinton News. In a small town like that, and, and as you know, you and I grew up in southern West Virginia, where the mountains and the geography really separate those towns out from one another, the newspaper in that day, you know, pre-internet especially, was such a vital resource. But you also had to play a balancing act. And, and I know 
uh, you know, I'm looking now at you on video and I see the big blow up of your book enough, which I just love. You talk a lot about in that book, how the, the editors and writers of small town newspapers have to walk a fine line with the local political machine. And in those towns that are geographically spread apart and, and nobody else is paying attention, it really is a fine line. How did you do that when you ran that newspaper? Uh, fair and accuracy. I treated everyone fair. In fact, when I ran for political office, I ran a story my opponent put out that it called me a liar and I put it in headlines such and such calls Tony Hilton a liar and printed his full statement. But you have to be fair and you have to be accurate and treat everybody the same. Were there times as the the head guy at the newspaper when the local mayor, local police chief, local sheriff really came after you? Well, uh, when I had my paper, uh, the mayor and I had a disagreement and he did threaten to burn the paper down. He didn't do it, but that gave impetus to the uh, plot in my first novel, which was enough. Tony Hilton is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom into books. He's an award-winning author of several books uh, about journalism, specifically small-town newspaper journalism. Um, in, in today's world, the media really seems to have a target on its back. And as a matter of fact, if you hear some politicians, you know, they, they say those words with a snarl, the media, or they'll call, you know, a journalist, you know, fake news. And I wonder as a guy who was around and, and doing this back before that was necessarily a bad thing. What, what your thoughts are on the current attacks on the media? Well, Fake news uh, at one time meant something that was untrue. Today it's been flipped and it means something with which we disagree. And that is a misuse of uh, words to say the least. But media, if you make everybody mad, you're pretty certain to be doing your job right. If a politician comes in and says, good job on that story today, you better go back and rewrite it. You, in your day, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I look at it sometimes with rose-colored glasses. I just had this conversation not too long ago that, that I, I'm not sure, you know, Walter Cronkite would have gotten the fake news handle. But in, in your day, certainly it seemed that journalists were much more down the middle. It was, to use the old dragnet phrase from Jack Webb, just the facts, ma'am. There wasn't a, a spin. But I wonder if that is rose-colored glasses. Was there a spin in your day or in your, your father's day when he ran that newspaper? Uh, everybody has an opinion. Sure. The key is to practice principled journalism that opinion stays out of the news stories. Now, if a newspaper wants to have an opinion, they have an editorial page, but it's got to stay out of the news columns. And one thing, and I'll digress, the founding fathers were all reviled by the colonial press. The colonial press makes today's press look like a Sunday school class. 
Wow. But the founding fathers selected a non-government, totally independent institution to hold public officials accountable. And that institution was freedom of the press. That's interesting. And, and, you know, as we talked about smaller towns and, and folks that are somewhat geographically separated away from, from the bright lights of the press, we've seen just in the last year, some small town newspapers that have uh, come under real fire from their local political leaders because no one was really paying attention. And, and you mentioned even the paper that you were the publisher of. It was a five-day-a-week paper. It's a weekly now in lots of cities, big and small. Papers have gone from dailies to weeklies to not even a print edition anymore. It, is it too much, Tony, in your opinion, to, to say that that it's dangerous for, for these news deserts to develop? And I use air quotes there, the news deserts where – you know, there's no one paying attention to what the county commission is doing with the funds. There's no one paying attention to the board of education. Do you think that's that's dangerous for those towns? I think it is because the closer government is to the people, like a city council, like a county commission, or like a board of education, their actions have a bigger impact on the people than Congress because uh, what those folks do affects uh, people much more than, I mean, day-to-day -day affects them than Congress. So if a small town, and, and a thing about a small town paper, we're talking about covering local government, but it gives recognition to kids that make the honor roll at school. Right. It promotes if they're having a blood drive. It promotes if a civic organization is having a community event. So a newspaper pulls a community together. And when it goes, I liken it to ripping some somebody's heart out. You know, I would agree with that. I live in the, the Washington, D.C. metro area. And, and, you know, one of those newspapers that, that takes it on the chin a lot is the Washington Post. As a, as a very liberal newspaper. And so conservative folks, uh, many conservative folks really come after the Washington Post. I keep my Post subscription because there's a lot of those stories that you talked about, a lot of the good news stories, a lot of the stories that highlight people doing good things in Washington, Maryland, and Virginia that have nothing to do with politics. And so maybe that's that's where journalism needs to, to get back to. Well, a local paper covers items and they can't get the news anywhere else. What happened, the internet took it over. A lot of small papers gave it away and uh, didn't realize they should have charged for the internet connection from the get-go. But when I lived in Reston, there was a Reston connection and a Reston uh, Times, and they fought like heck to cover that town. And now neither one of them are around. Yeah, it all comes down to the advertising revenue. And and uh, as you know, I come from the broadcasting industry, small town radio stations very much in the same boat where yep. that, that advertising revenue has dried up. So so I'll ask you this, and then I want to talk about the books. Well, you know, what's the answer for, for newspapers? How, how can they be financially successful in the 21st century? Do you have any thoughts on that? They have to make themselves valuable to the community. 
and they have to give these organizations publicity. They have to build a reputation for being fair and accurate, and they can get people back. They're, they're not going to be millionaires, but uh, they can do an important job that can really help hold our democracy together. We're talking with veteran journalist and uh, award-winning author Tony Hilton on Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. Tony's one of the good guys, and we uh, appreciate your insight on that. So let's talk about uh, writing novels, because that's a whole different discipline than writing a news story. Um your first book, I believe, it was enough, which is the one that I read and that I loved. What made you say, I, I want to write this book, and, and how did you do it? Well, I wrote most of that book in a log cabin up uh, in the woods of Preston County, West Virginia. I had worked on it and thought about it probably for 10 or 15 years and didn't really get serious about it until I retired and sat down and thought about how important a small paper can be to a community if responsible journalism is practiced. And I sat down and started thinking about some of the experiences I had and just started uh, writing. It's a, it's a great page turner. Um, it, you know, it's a fun book to read. It's, you know, there's it, it, a lot of sort of uh, seat of your pants kind of stuff. And, and it makes you engaged in the story itself. You really care about those characters. And it struck me as I was reading this, that this is a totally different style of writing than the way you write for a newspaper, certainly the way that that folks wrote for the newspaper back in the day, where it was just the facts, ma'am. So how did you do that? How did you turn off that journalist uh, uh, spigot and turn on that creative writing spigot? Well, let's say that I had to do a lot of rewriting <laughs> because uh, uh, a lot of adjective and description don't go into news stories. And it took, uh, it was a real challenge, but I took the advice of Stephen King from his book on writing and I let the characters lead me. I built each one of them with a personality, and uh, I listened to them. Now, that sounds a little weird. I understand it, but I'm an author. I get to sound weird, but uh, <laughs> they, did, uh, they did lead me and develop some of the plot by just sort of prod me along. What's the name of the character who's the, the small-town newspaper uh, head in, in Enough? Rick Hill. Rick. How much of Rick Hill is Tony Hilton, and how much of Tony Hilton is Rick Hill? Well, I'm not sure uh, a surgeon could separate them. <laughs> they, uh, they're intertwined, and Rick... Uh, probably avoided some of the mistakes I might've made when I was an editor. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the story and, and even the book cover, you know, it is the fire there parallels something that, that you said that, that you were threatened with uh, when you ran the newspaper in Hinton, West Virginia, that never happened where, uh, you know, some, some local bad guys, we won't give it all away, but, they decide the best way to keep that negative coverage down is to 
literally and figuratively burned down the newspaper. That's correct. Yep. It was uh, some scary times, but in the book, Rick Hill is a decided underdog and people root for the underdogs, but it was a real challenge to get the news. And there were times in the book when some of the politicians that opposed him thanked him for some of the coverage. I would imagine there were times when when you as a newspaper reporter and then as an editor and publisher um, were pulled off to the side and, and got those kind of quiet uh, uh, you know, tips and thank yous. Uh, were you ever pressured into giving up your sources? Oh, yeah, you're pressured all the time, but uh, you can't do it. You do it once, and it'll make somebody happy, but uh, it'll drop a source quicker than anything. And one thing about my all three of my books, I have an anonymous source that is an 85-year-old woman that never leaves her house. And how does she get her information? That's the question. I have no idea and <laughs> probably wouldn't want to know. But not only did uh, is the paper burned down, but the political crooks in enough hatch a plot to kill Rick Hill on a deserted road. So this book enough, uh, you know, as I read it, I thought, man, this would make a great movie. And I was a fan in the, in the nineties and uh, the early two thousands of those John Grisham books, you know, Grisham is an old uh, newspaper man and, and uh, an attorney. And so he would work that into his books. There was a great book he did called Ford County that talked about the small town newspaper in, in Mississippi. And then come to find out that you won an award at the Hollywood book festival uh, for, for a screenplay for this book enough. When you write books like this, and congratulations on that, by the way, but when you write these books, do you visualize um, actors or certain famous people as your characters? Is there someone that in your mind's eye was Rick Hill? Well, I did the screenplay and I didn't have anybody exactly in mind to play the part. I do have a friend that's an actor and... Uh, I was going to have him play the big political boss in it because he'd have been perfect. In fact, he grew up in Logan, and uh, but I haven't gotten that far, and the screenplay still out there, but so are a million others. Now, that's a whole different discipline too, right? Writing a screenplay is completely different than writing a novel. Uh, that's what I've heard. Tell me about the different disciplines. It. Well, first of all, in the screenplay, everything has to be visual. Right. And uh, I wrote the draft of the screenplay, got a screenplay editor from Chicago that went over and put it in the proper form. Screenplay writing was the most difficult type of writing I've ever done in my whole career. What made it hard? It's a certain format. Some things had to be flush left. Some had to be capitalized in the center. Uh, it was just, and screenplay evaluators in Hollywood are conditioned to that format. And if you don't exactly follow the format, they throw it in the trash can and never read it. 
And I guess, uh, as you say that out loud, there would be a lot less uh, descriptor in the in the text that the characters say, and more scene center. Uh, and so you'd have to pull an awful lot out of the book, correct? Uh, yeah, and the editor uh, saw some parts that were too wordy, and she helped me visualize them and really improved the script. Tony Hilton is our guest today. This is Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast, a special simulcast with this award-winning journalist and author. All right, we talked about the first book. What was number two in the series? Number two is called And Raise Hell. And that title comes from an 1861 editorial in the Chicago Times that says it's the duty of a newspaper to report the news and raise hell. So that's where the title came from. And the second book, The crime, the Crimes Are Committed in Enough, The Trials Are Committed Are uh, Conducted in and Raise Hell, and it focuses on what the crooks will do to double-cross each other to try to stay out of prison. Can someone read your second book and and understand what's happening without having read enough? Do, does, do they stand alone? Yes, they're written like that. They have they have the same characters, but they have a standalone plot, as does the third one. And the third one is called Comes Around. And what happens in Comes Around? Comes Around uh goes after somebody that thinks he's going to get away. And to write the third one, I spent a half hour on the phone with the IRS to make sure I understood the ins and outs of charges of income tax evasion. And it was uh, interesting to write, and it's got a little more mystery in it than the other two. The other two are more action-oriented. When uh, when you sit down to, to write these books, your lead character, as you said, Rick Hill, has an awful lot of Tony Hilton qualities. <laughs> but, but you're writing different uh, ages. You're writing uh, strong female characters. And I'm always fascinated in, in great writers and how they can put themselves into that other person. I mean, you know, how... How do you, Tony Hilton, is a guy who's, as you said, you're retired now. Uh, you know, how do you put yourself in in the mindset of someone who maybe is in their teens or their twenties? Well, or a lady, for that I, matter. I think that in this country that we have a common thread, and that is rooting for the underdog. And that doesn't make any difference whether you're six years old or 13 years old or 20 years old or 81 years old like me. We root for the underdog. And Rick Hill is the underdog in all three of these books. As well as the fourth one, which I'm in the middle of writing. This does not sound like a retirement uh, to me. This sounds like a, a guy who is doing a little less fishing and a little less golfing and a lot more writing. Is it is it fun for you, or have you just taken on a second career here? 
it's a little bit of both. It is fun. Um, it just, well, I innately root for the underdog, but I hope that this will play some kind of small role or might motivate somebody to consider getting into the field of journalism. Tony Hilton's our guest today. He's the author of uh, three books about journalism, small town newspaper uh, editor based on himself. And uh, they're available from headline books. You can find them at amazon.com. Go into your local bookstore and ask for them by name. They're award-winning books. And uh, Tony's got a lot of background in journalism to, to make sure these things read now, true. The, one, uh, thing, the, one thing I'd like to add, Bert. Yes, Bert, sir. Is if somebody wants a personally autographed copy. Okay. They can go to TonyHilton.com and it'll tell them how to get a personally autographed copy of the books. And we should point out that Hilton, in Tony's case, is spelled with a Y. So a little less Paris Hilton and a little more Tony Hilton. H-Y-L-T-O-N. Tony yeah, Hilton. the H-Y-L-T-O-N is the poor branch of the family. <laughs> Does this mean that your Hilton honors points don't work anymore, Tony? That's correct. <laughs> so, Tony, with these small town newspapers fading away, you know, a lot of the blame is is hoisted upon the internet uh, and, and, you know, your cell phone. You can get instant information right away, whereas, you know, a generation ago, folks might wait for the afternoon paper to come out or the morning paper the next day. Um do you see a future for print newspapers 10, 20, 30 years down the road, or is it all going to move online? Well, I think there's a need for information on local events and political decisions, that type of thing. Whether it's delivered in a newspaper or people find a way to make money delivering it online, I think there is a need for local journalism. I'm not about to try to predict how it'll be delivered, but small communities need it. And I think our uh, uh, system of democracy uh, demands it in some form. So to you, it's not as much about the distribution method. It's really about the content. Yeah, it is about the content. But uh, everybody's got to pay the light bill, so they've got to come up with a way to uh, make it profitable. Your newspaper work was primarily in, in the southern part of West Virginia, um, which has swung hard to the right politically in the last 10 to 15 years. Prior to that, when I was a kid, there was a heavily Democratic state. If you were a, an editor of a small-town newspaper today, and you were in a small town that was primarily conservative or maybe a small town that's that goes in the other direction, maybe somewhere in Northern California, for example, outside San Francisco, would you lean your newspaper? Uh, and, and I use newspaper loosely. It could be an online outlet, but your media outlet, would you lean it in the direction of the community or would you still try to go down the middle? Like, like the, the Walter Cronkite's and Edward R. Murrow's of the past. There's no alternative to make your uh, news coverage fair and accurate down the middle. The editorial uh, 
page is the opinion of the newspaper, and that is determined by the issue. On some issues, might demand a conservative approach, particularly when you're spending public money. And uh, another issue might demand a more liberal approach if you're trying to solve a social issue. So as a guy that, that did small town newspapers, I'm sure that you read and looked up to some bigger papers around the country. Who gets it right in 2023 in terms of the, the big papers around the country, the papers of record, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, the Post, the Washington Post? Uh, who do you think gets it right out there? I'm not sure any of them get it right, conservative or liberal, because the political bias that has crept into the news columns on both left and right. So uh, every now and then they'll they'll get it right. A lot of times that's by accident. That's interesting that you say that. So so would you say then that the smaller outlets tend to be the ones that are more down the middle these days? I would think so, because they meet they see the public officials at the grocery store and at church. And uh, they, if they don't treat them fair, they could get punched in the mouth, <laughs> in the produce aisle. <laughs> you get a kumquat upside your head. Okay? <laughs> exactly. We're talking with Tony Hilton about journalism and about his books, including the award-winning Enough that picked up a Hollywood Book Festival Best Screenplay Award. And they're available uh, autograph copies uh, that you can have inscribed Available at TonyHilton.com, and that's Hilton with a Y. You can also get them at uh, uh, the non-autograph copies at HeadlineBooks.com, Amazon, and wherever books are sold. Tony gets out and does an awful lot of book signings and is an indie book award winner. So don't think these things are going to be dry and and uh, are not page turners because they're the exact opposite of that. Even this new book uh, where you talked about and comes around dealing with with the IRS and and you know financial topics uh tend to be a real snooze fest and and you know there's there's many a TV host and radio host that will stay away from things with a lot of numbers so how did you make you know this this tax thing interesting in the new book well uh, first of all I didn't get in too many details with actual numbers gotcha uh it was how the money was accumulated and what illegal activities this particular guy had. He had the old flower fund that used to be in West Virginia state government that all the highway department guys that worked at county garages paid uh, 10% of their salary in cash to the county superintendent every payday. So I deal with those kinds of things as rather uh, than getting into the real dollars and cents and uh, the public reaction to this fella getting away with it so many times comes into play also. And Rick Hill's cussedness of not giving up uh, on covering the news uh, 
keeps it interesting to say the least. Like I say, it's got more mystery to it than the other two. What it, now, I'd never heard this term before, and I'm an old Southern West Virginia boy. The flower fund, is that what that was called? Oh, yeah. Um, it was back when state road workers at the county level were not covered by civil service. So they got their jobs through whether their uncle was a precinct captain or supported the winning uh the winning candidate in the old Democrat primary, which in West Virginia at one time was the election. Right. So uh, the county road superintendent would have come around every payday and collect 10% in cash, collect 10% of their salary. And then he'd give it to somebody that came around to all the state road garage to pick up the money. And they took it to Charleston. And this is a verifiable fact from your journalism background, huh? Uh, well, uh, people my age that know anything about the politics of West Virginia in the 50s and 60s uh, wouldn't argue against it. Wow. In 1960, uh, Jack Kennedy ran for president and ran heavily in West Virginia. Now, your father was involved in, in the newspaper business then. Uh, you would have been, what, a high school senior, I guess, when all this was going on, if I have my math correct. Yep. Um, what do you remember about the coverage of that? Because it was a pivotal state uh, in, in his ability to actually win the presidency. My dad at that time had covered Southern West Virginia politics for 25 or 30 years. He said it was the dirtiest election he'd ever seen. There was more money floating around. Another thing I remember about it is I got to meet John Kennedy on the steps of the old Logan County Courthouse and got to chat with him for five or ten minutes. No kidding. Tell me about that. How did that well, come I to just be? went up to him, introduced myself, and asked him a couple questions. He was most, uh, most casual, and it wasn't like now with all the uh, – uh, handlers gathered around him. And then uh, Hubert Humphrey spoke at the intermission of my high school prom. <laughs> wow. Well, it was, he was politicking in Logan County that Saturday night, and it was the biggest crowd in the county. So they brought him in, and he asked us to go home and tell our parents to vote for him. I, you know, I'm not sure that's the kind of thing that, that'll help you get a kiss at the end of the night from your prom date, having Hubert Humphrey as the halftime entertainment. I'm not sure that worked <laughs> out. So, so when you talked about uh, your father, who had, had been a journalist for a couple of decades by the time Kennedy got to town, uh, saying it was the dirtiest election and lots of money floating around, the stories I heard as a kid is that there was literal and figurative vote buying from from these uh, folks that would come from the the sort of the back hollers in the woods would come out to and cast their vote. Did you see that, and 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 what did that actually look like back in the day? Well, the first time I was exposed to it, I was twelve years old, giving out uh, election stuff to voters going in for a friend of my parents running for school board. And I noticed out in the schoolyard up there on the hill that uh, voters would come, guys would come and go from one car to the other. 
And I asked another person, uh, what are they doing? And he said they were going from one faction to the other to see who would pay them the most. <laughs> and uh, I was about 12 years old when I was first exposed to the traditions of Logan County politics. You uh, talked earlier in our conversation about the press during uh, colonial times, shortly after the founding of the country. And then, of course, you named your second book, And Raise Hell, after a, a newspaper story in the Chicago paper in 1861 at the dawning of the Civil War. We all think because we live in this world that, and we're told fake news, fake news, and, uh, you know, the media, the fake news media, that, that it's the worst it's ever been. Is journalism in 2023, in your opinion, as somebody who studied it closely, is is it the worst it's ever been? I think it's more threatened now, and I'll, I'll tell you why. On the one hand, it's good that there are a lot of news sources. Okay. On the other hand, it's easy for them to get by on the social media, and you can't track them down and see where the news is coming from. So I think there is a different kind of electronic threat uh, that we haven't had before. I think the key is the teaching of journalism, uh, fair and accurate. And uh, they say that a total objectivity is not possible. Everybody has an opinion. That's true but you keep them out of the news columns. And it's a, I think you've identified one of the big challenges to our democracy uh, today. So let's talk about that, that journalism student in 2023. Now, I know you've been involved in, in the university system. You've done some teaching and um, if, if, you know, you talk to an 18, 19 year old young person today, how do you convince them in a world where artificial intelligence can can write a novel and do a pretty darn good job at it with, with uh, very little human intervention? How do you convince a young person to take a job as a writer today? I would tell them about the opportunities to help people, inform people, and do good for the community. That is the way that I would approach them because I think young people today want to do good. I think they're awful pessimistic about the future and you'd have to give them something to be proud of doing. Do you feel optimistic about uh, the future of journalism? I'm an optimist by nature. Some of the things going on today absolutely uh, give me heartburn, but uh, I have to hope that it it is, is coming back. I probably would be 51% um, optimistic. Well, we'll take that. That's at least a glass barely half full. Uh, a question was just handed to me here, and I think this is a great one. When you were a small-town journalist, how did you check your sources and how many sources did you check to make sure your story was, as you said, fair and accurate? Well, everybody would come to you to give you a tip 
and generally they had an axe to grind and they didn't want quoted. So you're re real careful of those people. Uh, I made it, if somebody came to me with a tip and said, this guy's doing this or this doing, I say, go to the next member of the city, next meeting of the city council and ask the question in public and I'll quote you. Otherwise, I'm not paying attention to it. So uh, there uh, were a lot of people that were uh, willing to put my neck on the chopping block, but you just have to guard against it and be cynical to a point. That's interesting. So you're saying that, that in your experience, lots of people would come to you and hope that you and the newspaper would be their mouthpiece, but when it was time for them to put up or shut up, they shut up. That's correct. Isn't that interesting? So in today's world where you've got a lot of, uh, what's the term, keyboard warriors that that hide at home and they they don't put their name on things and they, they throw it out there into the internet, I guess we all need to really be on guard as to how they're sourcing their material, if they're sourcing it at all. That's correct. That's Tony, correct. With, with, some, with these big newspapers. The, I'm sorry, go ahead, sir. Some of the finest fiction appears in newspapers sometimes. Well, and that's actually where I was going with this is that you talked about the, the bigger papers that I mentioned, the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, the Washington Post, New York Times, how the slant has migrated from the editorial page and begun to infect, uh, and that may be a strong word, but work its way into the straight news copy on the other pages. If you were able to wave your Tony Hilton magic wand, and maybe you were the editor, the publisher of the Washington Post, the New York Times, how how do you coach a journalist against doing that, against letting their biases factor in? What do well, you tell? Well, I would ask them if they were going to do an interview with somebody. I would ask them to write the questions down. They're going to ask that individual, and I would review those questions and. I would make sure the questions were more complete than what, because sometimes, uh, Burke, you can miss a story by the questions you don't ask. So you have to be careful that if, if a source answers A, you've got another list of questions to ask. If they answer B, you got another list to answer. And, uh, be extremely careful with letting somebody go off the record. For folks that, that aren't really familiar with how that works, you, you hear that that phrase thrown around an awful lot in, in TV and movies, but to go off the record means the, the person can tell you information, but they won't use their name. So that's the when it says into the paper, uh, anonymous sources are people who, who spoke under the condition that you know, of anonymity because they, they weren't allowed to talk about it. You're really careful with that. Well, I am. And if somebody tells you something and they're off the record, there are generally ways that you can double check. Them. There are other sources. Very few stories have only one source. So you can uh, uh, protect yourself. And if there's any doubt, you can hold off on the story a day or two. 
Award-winning author Tony Hilton is our guest today. He's got three great books about small-town newspapers and real page-turners. The first one is Enough, and Raise Hell is the second one. Comes Around is the third one. They're all available at TonyHilton.com for a personalized autographed copy. Um, and Tony's books have, have won uh, Indie Book Awards, and his uh, screenplay for his first book, Enough, uh, is an award winner at the Hollywood Book Festival for Best Screenplay. Tony, uh, my longtime client and friend, Homer Hickam, who's a New York Times number one bestselling author, tells a great story about how his uh, his big breakout book, not his first book, but his big breakout book, uh, Rocket Boys, came to be. And he got a, a phone call from Smithsonian Magazine, uh, who called him when he worked at NASA and said, Homer, we understand you're a really fast writer and we need something turned around quickly. Can you come up with something? And, and he said, well, you know, I'd... I don't know what to do. And he looked at his desk and he saw an old dusty rocket that he built when he was a kid and said, you know, I, I, uh, I built this rocket when I was a kid and with my buddies and, and we won the national science fair. And, and the lady from Smithsonian magazine was thoroughly and totally unimpressed by that idea, but she was up against it because she was behind deadline. And she never said Homer was a good writer. She said he was a fast writer as a newspaper man. You had to be a fast writer. Were you a fast writer in writing these books? What's your process in writing these books? Do you do you sit down and you don't get up until you do a certain word count? Do you sit at the computer until you, you're there for an hour or two? And no matter what comes out, how do you do it? Well, there are some dry spells. I remember I almost quit writing enough when I sat down one day for an hour and maybe type 10 words. I was really disgusted. And uh, I just stopped, walked away, came back the next day, sat down and typed for about two and a half hours straight. So I, I have found that there's no formula. Uh, some people write every day. Uh, some people write every other day. Uh, with the book I'm writing now, the fourth in the series, I write almost every day, which was different than the other three. Did you run into writer's block like that when you were a journalist? Not when I was a journalist, because in in journalism, when I'd cover a story, it was live. And it, it, it had to get out and had to get informed. Anybody that wants to write a book, uh, Burke, should buy on writing by Stephen King. It is like he's cheering for you to be successful. It's unlike any other book associated with him. So that's your Bible when it came to, to learning how to be a journalist. Well, learning how to be a novelist, uh, Stephen King showed me the way. The novelist for Stephen King. So so this was on writing in terms of being a, an author, a novelist. Yes. It's a totally different discipline in your mind then. It is, it is. And he had one thing in there that helped me a lot. Listen to the characters. I love that. And you do draw very rich characters. And, and you know, I've always been of the belief, and this is just me as a reader, that it doesn't matter quite as much how great the plot is or how great the the uh, the scenes are, or you know any of that, if you don't care about the characters in the book. Oh, yeah, you really have to do it. I tried, at least in my mind, to give them all a personality and a background. 
do you know where these books are, are going to wrap up when you start them? And are you one of those folks that does an outline and, you know, here's the beginning, here's the middle and the end, and then you just kind of flesh it out? Or do, does it come to you as you write? I might have a rough idea of where I'm going, but I might write a section with an idea to go in one direction, and I might read it a second time, and it might raise a, uh, a question that will move me a, a little bit off of that, and I'll go in another direction. That was the case with Comes Around because of the intricacies of tax laws. Did you uh, did you go online and do a lot of research on that? You said you talked to the IRS, and you talked to the IRS on purpose. Most of us run from those guys. <laughs> well, they have two people on their staff in Washington, and part of their jobs are to talk to authors to make sure the IRS is presented properly. And if anybody needs help with their image, God knows it's the IRS. <laughs> yeah, but, those guys are the uh, PR firm. I... Uh, I also, just to pique some people's interest, I also read the trial transcript of Al Capone's trial. Now, where did you find that? Was that a Google search? It's online. It wow. So research is a big part of, of writing books, even if it's uh, you know a fiction novel. Um, and I, I would find that very interesting. I think the research piece would be a lot of fun for me. I'm sure there are parts of your job as an author, even as an award-winning author, that are more enjoyable than others. So what what's the fun part for you in writing books? I like to develop characters and maybe get a character that doesn't, two characters that don't seem connected at all and then find a way or a situation that'll bring them together. All right, now let me flip that coin. What's the hardest part about being an author? Proofreading. Something you would take away if you Proof could. Proofreading. Proofreading. Uh, because I looked at enough, and I didn't do a good job on that one, and uh, I've done a little bit better job on the on the other two, and hopefully for the fourth one, I'll get it done even better. Do you have um, an editor or first readers that you send drafts to before you turn them into the publisher? I do now. I do now. Yeah, after the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my eyes would cross if I had to read it over and over again. You're just going to miss things. Yep. So, Tony, as, as our time comes to a close here, um, I appreciate the, the insight on journalism. I wonder if you with your books, you know, they're all fiction novels. They're all set in, in this world of small town newspapers. If you have a, in your mind's eye, a target reader, who you think would really enjoy this book? Well, first of all, somebody that enjoys rooting for the underdog. And then somebody that likes to see public officials held accountable. And in somebody that enjoys a cast of irascible characters that come up with some of the damnedest things to say that'll just make you chuckle while you're reading. <laughs> uh, I, I would take the approach of inclusion 
and uh, that's uh, that's who I have in mind. And you'll notice I didn't say anything about what age group. That's right. I think people uh, have these types of feelings no matter uh, what age group they happen to be in. Well, certainly we all like to root for the underdog. And uh, I don't think you have to be a, a news junkie necessarily to, to like these books. But if you are a news junkie, I think you're going to love these books. They're from my good friend, Tony Hilton, who is a an award-winning author, an indie book award winner, and he's now an award-winning screenplay author as well. So we might just see enough up on the big screen before it's all over with. If you'd like to get a, a book signed by Tony and, and uh, personalized as a gift, go to TonyHilton.com, H-Y-H-Y-L-T-O-N. Thank you, Tony, for being with us today. Burke, I appreciate very much you taking the time to have me. That's Tony Hilton. Check out his books at TonyHilton.com and his publisher, HeadlineBooks.com. Uh, you can also get them at bookstores everywhere by name, Amazon.com as well. Thank you to Headline Books for letting us co-host their Zoom into Books video platform as part of our Big Time Talker podcast. And thanks to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. For our guest, award-winning author Tony Hilton, I'm Burke Allen at our studios here in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.